So how many of you, uh, by raise of hands, have read any Jordan Peterson? Okay. Who has not read anything by Peterson? I assume is the rest of you. Uh, who doesn't know anything about Peterson? You know very little. Okay. Okay, that's fine. And that, that's not going to be a problem. Um, so this is my third talk. Uh, called Understanding Jordan Peterson. But tonight, uh, we're looking at Beyond Order. That's as close as you're going to get to a PowerPoint, me showing you the book. <laughs> now, I lectured, I found out about him in um, early 2017. Uh, and so I ended up giving the first talk in 2018, looking at his, the book that had come out called 12 Rules for Life. Well, he became, he was notorious before the publication of this book in Canada because he stood against a bill, fought it against it, went to uh, the highest courts and argued against Bill C-16. C if you don't know what Bill C-16 is, C is basically reflective of, it's like the, the Canadian Bill of Rights, it's the charter rights, C. And C-16 has to do with the Human Rights Code, and Bill C-16 was amending Bill C, um, the, the Charter, the Human Rights Code, to include gender orientation and gender identity. I did not say ginger. I said gender. That sounds the same to you. I'm sorry. Uh, everyone wonders what gender identity is. <laughs> you know, life is a redhead. <laughs> but uh, he fought this uh, because he felt that when you, by including this into the bill, I'm not going to go too much into this, but by including it to the bill, he felt that there was no way of policing such a thing because it was so fluid. And he felt that that was the beginning of, of the shutdown of freedom of conscience that what if you didn't refer to someone by their preferred pronoun? Is that against, is that a human rights violation? Uh, is it a hate crime? Uh, how would you know if it's a hate crime or not? Uh, and so he felt that if you put it into the Bill of Rights, it would be, easy, it would be uh, easily misunderstood or manipulated. So he really argued against this because he felt the end of the freedom of conscience means the end of the freedom of speech, ends the freedom of thought and practice. And he felt this keenly as a University of Toronto professor. Uh, he was a University of Toronto professor of psychology. He was also uh, the only one on staff at the time as a clinician, um, as a uh, one who practiced psychology, he was a psychologist who helped people practically. And so when he came out with this, uh, he was vilified, he was hated, he was maligned. Um, and I basically give some of this story in my other talks, but I needed to respond to it. And, but it was so contentious. I was thankful for this book to come out uh, because he doesn't really talk too much about gender conversion or gender orientation or Bill C-16. He's really just giving practical advice on how to live life. Uh, but once this was released, it, he became an international success. So I looked at this book <clears throat> um, and I will explain a little bit more how he sees the world. But then I had to give a second talk because I tried to avoid the political 
the social consequences of his thought, uh, his, his confrontation with ideologies, particularly what he was calling relativistic neo-Marxism or postmodern uh, neo-Marxism. How old is he now? Uh, I don't know exactly how old he is. Uh, late 50s, early 60s. So there's a picture of Jordan Peterson. Um, just so you can have a picture of him. So maybe I'll show you the four slides I have my half done PowerPoint. Since you just can't stand not having images in front of you. I thought I would be enough. <laughs> so the second talk is I dealt with his phenomenon. So people who were attracted to Peterson, particularly of his stance on Bill C-16, his kind of articulations against what he was referring to as relativistic neo-Marxism at the time, he doesn't refer to it in that way. It would be probably better known now as critical theory, critical race theory and these things. And I'm not going to go into what he meant by all that at this point, because it would make it too long and you can just listen to the second talk. But what I was talking about is that when people came to Peterson, that what brought them in is not what kept them. What brought them in was his stance on critical theory, but what kept him was his life advice. Mm -hmm. And, and I argued that he stood in the flow of um, a flow of ideas that began with new atheism, which really stood against seeing religion as dangerous. It was kind of post 9-11. But it was a very scientific worldview. Some people have now called it scientism. It's strict materialism, that all we are is matter, and we need to have the courage to see that everything is meaningless. Religion is dangerous. Well, that did not leave a lot of people with hope or practical advice to deal with a chaotic society. Well, there was the next flow of ideas was atheism 2.0. Um, Alan de Baton, Hubert Dreyfus, Sean Kelly, these kind of people were trying to have a softer touch of atheism. And what they were really offering was, well, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Let's keep religious practices. Let's look at human classics to try to create a meaningful life, even though we know in reality it's meaningless. But it was not a coherent worldview. So when Jordan Peterson came along, he gave practical advice as a psychologist who knew where people were at, and he gave practical advice that whenever you read one rule, it expanded into science, history, literature, religion, myth, and he gave a comprehensive meaning system to practical advice on how to live in a world that seems chaotic and meaningless. That's where I thought his phenomena kept him popular. But in light of that, we saw lots of people come into Labrie, people who started becoming interested in Christianity. Uh, some believed it to be true. Some thought it was helpful. And in fact, some people felt <clears throat> they started believing in the gospel, or that's what they were telling me. They became a Christian. But I soon learned to ask them, did they believe the gospel according to Jesus or the gospel according to Peterson? <clears throat> and many times it was the gospel according to Peterson as helpful um, as he was in bringing people in and having discussions, many of them were just kind of uh, deeply ensconced in this worldview of, of Peterson's comprehensive worldview, because it seemed to give them everything. Practical advice, meaningful life, without the obligation of God or a personal God. Mm -hmm. It was curious to, and, and so I started thinking, how do I respond to this? 
And there was this knowledge, there was this idea that there was a second book going to come out, uh, 12 more rules. But at that time, Jordan Peterson fell sick, very sick. Uh, he was taking a prescription of benzodiazepine. Uh, that's the first time and the only time I'll be able to pronounce that correctly. <laughs> uh, if I did, I think I've pronounced it correctly. Um, but he started taking it to deal with anxiety. He already had an eating kind of an eating problem where he only eats red meat, which people thought, oh, he's just kind of a, a carnivore, but actually it's, it's diet and he doesn't like his diet. So he started, he started taking this medicine to deal with some anxiety, but then his wife was diagnosed with cancer and he was on an international speaking tour with all these people coming up to him in the street saying, you saved my life. Um, I was on drugs, but now I have a family with children. Uh, my life has been transformed and people just wanting to get near him. Uh, and so he felt this tremendous responsibility and surprised by all the hatred he was getting and all the love and admiration he was getting. Um, but he was able to give these sermons or these lectures on Genesis for two hours a pop, and you would have millions and millions and millions of views of his like two-hour lectures on Genesis. But he got very sick, and so he increased the doses of benzodiazepine, and he he um, he knew that it was not something he should be on. But it was getting, but he became more and more dependent on it. And then it started having negative side effects after three years of use, especially with his uppage of use, where he wasn't able to eat. He was uh, kind of scattered. He was very nervous and it, it, it was painful. Life was painful. Every movement was painful. And he wanted a radical change. He wanted to detox off benzodiazepine three times. Um, <laughs> He, am I getting that right? Oh, yes. But there's nowhere in the world that would take him off of it except Russia. So he actually, um, he ended up having all these panic attacks. His daughter took care of him and he was taken into the hospital in Toronto. He said he passed out and woke up in Moscow and he was induced into a coma for a month or so. After this detox, he was very weakened. He ended up going to Florida and then back to Ontario. And that was basically a two-year hiatus from public view. So he just disappeared. And then now this year during COVID, during COVID, um, he has uh, released this second book. And if you look at his podcast, particularly earlier this year, he looks rough. And you can see a picture of him looking kind of rough here. I don't know if that's just the artist who wanted to make him look a little bit rougher. They caught him at a bad moment. Uh, but he, he's, he's looking rough. He's, he's a bit rough, but he's still functioning. But now he's much more vivacious. He's probably, he said he's not at the level as he, as he was prior, but he's still much more functioning than he was a few months ago. Does wife okay? His wife is okay, and the cancer is in submission. Uh, is that remission, remission. Hopefully it's submitting. Okay, so in light of that, this is an unusual time to come back into his thought world again. Just so you know, I'm not an acolyte of Jordan Peterson. I'm not a person who raves about Peterson, but I'm also not a person who hates Peterson. 
I feel like I'm in the middle road. And I just try to understand his thoughts and the importance that he plays because he still continues to be very important to many people. And he still is a reference point when we're having discussions, discussions about ideology, uh, men and masculinity and um, about psychology, uh, life in a meaningless or a chaotic world. Seemingly, seemingly meaningless. So, so I want to approach his second book beyond order. But in order to introduce you to beyond order, I'm going to give a very brief review of what I said in my first talk. And when I mean brief, I mean really brief. I actually mean it this time. <laughs> Did he have the second 12 more rules? So beyond orders, 12 more rules for life. So beyond order. So the first one is white. The second one's black. I'll get to that in a minute. Okay. On its own purpose. So in the first talk, I talked briefly about his worldview as three, um, his foundation, uh, basically his foundational realities, what he sees as fundamental to reality, and then the drama of life or the drama of history. And then I gave a Christian response. Um, so there's three fundamental realities um, that he suggests there are. Order, chaos, and the hero. Those are his three fundamental realities. Uh, so he says, um, and so there's chaos in order, and the hero has to navigate the two to make life meaningful. Well, there's... The world of experience, quoting him, has primal constituents. This is from his first book, 12 Rules, the white book. There are the necessary elements who interactions define drama and fiction. One of these is chaos. Another is order. Uh, we are adapted. Okay. And so this is kind of a sense of how it ties into science, how it ties into evolution, this order and chaos. We are adapted in the deepest Darwinian sense, not to the world of objects, but to the meta-realities of order and chaos, yang and yin. Chaos and order make up the eternal, transcendent environment of the living. So what he's saying there is that reality is fundamentally order and chaos with the hero navigating the two, but, but the, as these as these are fundamental, these have evolved into life as we know it now. Um, that they're, you know, often when we describe the history of the world, we describe it as a molecular development. You know, from, from the atom or from the molecule into this world of diversity that we see now. It's an evolutionary explanation, uh, biologically, scientifically. But he's saying, no, no, there's actually a reality subjectively or psychologically. And so he really sees that prior or superimposed upon or undergirding this material reality is order and chaos and consciousness, the hero. So he talks about the evolution of consciousness. That's his drama. Um, and so <clears throat> basically, in brief summary, he said that 
there, the hist the evolution of consciousness is that we were unconscious, naked apes. We were unaware of ourselves, but at some moment we awoke. We became self-aware. We became self-conscious. <clears throat> and as soon as we became self-aware arose all human suffering because we learned that we were vulnerable. You see a deer that dies and then the other deer walk off. But when you see a human die and you're self-aware, you become vulnerable, aware of your own mortality. And so that's the beginning of psychological suffering. But it also means that you know how to make the other person suffer because you know what makes them vulnerable. And so he believes that Adam and Eve, original sin was when they became aware of themselves. It's an evolutionary tale. And we started acting out stories that kind of try primarily trying to get to understand who we were fundamentally. And, uh, and then religion basically became the guardians or custodians of these stories. And they started having practices and rituals in order for us to be in right relationship to reality. Um, because these stories basically were encoded in, uh, were expressions of this evolutionary development. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Well, Christianity became the best story. And it was a revolution. It helped think of modern science. It developed modern rationality. but what Christianity gave birth to, modern rationality and modern science, actually undercut Christianity's own power, its own story. So science displaced Christianity as the major story. But then Nietzsche came along and displaced confidence in even the scientific method. And so Nietzsche said, well, we've killed God. And when God is killed, anything is possible. That is both positive and negative. Um, and so for Nietzsche, it, and who is a big influence on Peterson, is that it might, this will navigate us toward nihilism or toward totalitarianism. You need to understand nihilism is self-constructed values, but it is chaos. Totalitarianism is state-imposed values, which is order. And if we go toward chaos or order, we will shipwreck. So we need to navigate between nihilism and totalitarianism. And he believes that's the hero's journey, is that each, each person needs to be aware of themselves and navigate between personal, they need to navigate toward personal responsibility to make the world a better place. And the way to do that is to contend with the suffering of life. <clears throat> okay, so that's Peterson. Uh, that's what he talks about, 12 rules for life. It's important that I went over that because that's ultimately what he continues. Um, <clears throat> and so uh, I'll get into this in a minute. Okay, so let's get into the beyond order. So I'm going to talk about beyond order. I'm going to look at the nature of the text, which will take seconds. Then I'm going to look at the content of what he has to say or new content, question mark. Um, and that will spend a lot of time on that. And then a Christian response to Peterson. You with me? Yeah. Okay. So before I get into content, I want to reflect on the nature of the writing itself. Um, the structure has remained the same. You, uh, 
You get pictures at each beginning of each chapter. And then you get a very witty rule for life. Notice that opportunity lurks where responsibility has been abdicated. Just rolls off the tongue. Uh, <laughs> not really. Uh, but he gives lots of uh, interesting rules. Um, do not hide unwanted things in the fog. Do not do what you hate. And so on. Uh, one of his most famous ones is uh, always tell the truth or at least don't lie. That was from his previous book. Um, and so uh, also he always gives an interesting story at the beginning of each, each chapter. And then he gives, then he expands on his ideas of biology, evolution, mythology, and how um, you need to navigate between chaos and order. So that's basically unchanged. In both books, it happens. However, in other ways, this book is distinct. <clears throat> Peterson has always been very vulnerable about his own family struggles. Uh, it's amazing that a psychologist is as vulnerable as he is. But at the end of this one, he talks about the struggles of his child's, of his daughter's life, his son's life, his own life. Well, he continues that in speaking about his wife's cancer. But because he was gone for two years, he includes an overture talking about to clear up any misunderstanding of what had happened to him. And he's plain, he's very plain spoken about what had happened to him in the past two years. His addiction to benzo, benzodiazepine, uh, what effects that had on him, how his daughter treated him, how he came out of it. And, uh, and if you ever listen to his podcast, he's very vulnerable, very truthful. Truth-telling is one of his most adamant rules for life. Um, so uh, you really get a sense that his public, that his health really shapes how he thinks in this book. This one was feeling the contention that he was fighting with ideology, even though he can, can, carries that on in some ways. You can feel that he's dealing with personal suffering. He's trying to apply this to himself and wonders if these rules still apply. <clears throat> um, and um, let's see what else. Also, what you see is that he, I think that this is actually, it was, it, honestly, it was really hard for me to get back into. I was just like, oh, I just don't want to get back into the world of Peterson. Not because I hate Peterson, just because I'm just like, ah, it's just not my first choice. I have a million books I want to read. But uh, I felt that I needed to complete the process that I started. You don't know sometimes what you start. <laughs> if he publishes another book, I'm, a, I'm sunk. Um, but what you find is that he doesn't mention postmodern or relativistic neo-Marxism anywhere in here. He does talk about ideology. But he refers to ideology in the most general terms, and he also includes, he, he talks about collectivism and communism, but he also includes Nazism. Because some people wondered if he was like a neo-fascist, because that's what anyone is if they're not communist, <clears throat> it seems. Uh, he's also less folksy. He's, a, he's an Albertan cowboy-wearing philosophical guy, and he likes to say bloody hell a lot. And um, 
uh, and boy and stuff like that. He removes all the folksy kind of talk from this book. Uh, I mean, it's not so much, but it does feel like you're talking about an edge, very educated farmer who happened to teach at Harvard and McGill or um, University of Toronto, I'm sorry. But this is just like a person who is, removes the folksy, removes any kind of attitude or appearance. Um, he's more direct to his audience. I think that this is because, I mean, he talks in here how touched he was by all the people who've been affected by him and the emphasis on personal responsibility that he and all the young men that have felt. And he feels the incredible burden and joy of all that's happened to him. So I think that he's much more direct to his audience. This, this feels like someone who had taught in a classroom a lot and worked in that way in, in a clinical psychologist. But this feels like he's talked to people on the streets, um, even though he refers to a lot of clinical cases. <clears throat> um, and then also uh, he continues, like I said, his one of his number one rules is truth telling. Uh, well, you can tell that he really continues his pursuit, trying to understand what he really truly believes. So this is not just telling people, but trying to understand what he himself believes and if he can still believe it, um, though he does have passion and certainty in many ways, but he always admits, you know, maybe, and this is what I think so far. And he's always had that kind of honesty and vulnerability that some people haven't noticed unless they really pay attention to him. They think he's so cocky, self-assured, but actually he's a very humble, vulnerable person who has lots of conviction. Okay, so I just feel that that's kind of the different nature of the writing of this book. Okay, so now I want to talk about the ideas of this book, Beyond Order. Okay, so this one is called An Antidote to Chaos, 12 Rules for Life. Rules, antidote to chaos makes sense. Well, this does not, is not an antidote to order. This is beyond order, 12 more rules for life. So he's just doubling down on order. No, he is really trying to explain and further his understanding of what chaos might mean and how it might be necessary for us. Um, and so you can see the importance of the yin-yang, you know, the yin-yang symbol, the black and white, but there's a spot of white in the black, there's a spot of black in the white, and they're going in a circle. Uh, and the Tao um, is, this is called, this is a symbol for Taoism. And Tao is, the middle way is the serpentine middle. And so you're trying to navigate between order and chaos, even though there's order and chaos, so there's always a bit of chaos in order, and there's always a bit of order in chaos. And you're trying to navigate as the hero through the serpentine middle. Well, he begins by writing the book that's white, the second book that's black. This is about order. This is about chaos. But it's not as simple as that. Um, because it's not as um, he does talk about it as an eternal dualism or duality. It's not as clear cut as that, in spite of what he says. So he says in this book, 12 Rules for Life, it's chaos within order 
within chaos, within higher order. The order that is most real is the order that is most unchanging. And that is not necessarily the order that is most easily seen. The point about that quote is that, yes, there is order and chaos, but order is the fundamental reality. And it's a higher order, but it's an unknown higher order. But that higher order cannot exist without chaos. That's the point. They both are necessary, but higher order is the highest, but it still can't exist without chaos. Um, and he says, and beyond order, the eternal force that faces chaos and turns it into productive order, or that takes order that has become too restrictive, reduces it to chaos and re renders it productive once again. Okay, so what he's saying there, um, and I'm taking the easiest quotes I could find, um, but what he's saying there is that chaos, so order can become static, it can become hardened. And you need something to shake it up because otherwise it becomes totalitarian. So you need some rejuvenating chaos. And so chaos can be good uh, and it shakes things up and, and then you go into something new. Um, so chaos is this like potential, this constant potential in order that can flare out at any moment. It's like energy. You know, like sometimes you see in these movies, people holding a, a canister and uh, I can't remember which one it was Harry Potter or something, but there's like a canister and it's like shaking. And if they open it up, it's just going to go everywhere. But if they can control it, then it's very powerful. Well, that's chaos within order. There's always this bubbling up. And if you know how to navigate chaos in light of order, you're really developing potential. You're, you're, you're developing the potential for yourself and for society to become its better self. So, um, and so this can be a, a, a road adventure. So chaos can be something positive. Wow, it's a road adventure. I've never done this before. It's exciting to venture out into a new career or something like that. Um, but it can also be a car accident. And so are you ready for that renewal? Are you ready for that crisis that's going to shake things up? And so this is a book on thinking, how do we contend with chaos? And how do we shape it to the good, to the renewal of order? <clears throat> so that's why it's not an antidote to order. Because if it was just chaos, it would be destruction. Um, so I think about the ocean. Uh, the ocean is a very, was a very fearful thing to the ancient world. Uh, because there was so much unknown and the ships were so small and it could be overthrown. But as we confronted the ocean in all its unknowability and unknown, we, there were people who shipwrecked and there were people lost at sea. But as we continued to venture in, we realized, wow, it's a very powerful force. We can use it for good. We can create electricity. We can transport goods. We can unite nations. We can discover new things. And so they, they, instead of walking away from chaos, I just want to be happy in my home, kind of like Bilbo. He needed to go out into an adventure. And that adventure, that adventure or that engagement of the ocean transformed society um, and transformed uh, Bilbo. Uh, you know, and so there's this 
orientation to the status quo, but then you're disoriented, but that disorientation allows you to be reoriented to life. <clears throat> okay, so that's that's my first point. Um, so, so I have three main points, I should have told you, in um, Beyond Nature, the content. So the first one is order and chaos. The second one is the ethical superstructure. He doesn't have that word, I do. <laughs> ethical superstructure. Um, and then the third point will be maps and stories, but I'll get to that in just a second. Okay, so order and chaos can be good or evil. Chaos and uh, order are not neutral. Like I said, chaos can be a road adventure or it can be a car accident. Order can be a home or a concentration camp. Um, and so you're, there's always these two. Now, order is at the base. Chaos is there, but they can go in either direction. And that's why order needs chaos, because if order doesn't have chaos, it becomes totalitarianism. If chaos doesn't have order, it becomes nihilism. So if you have two, it create, it produces a new world and it continually renew, renews and reinvigorates life. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I'll get to more of that later. So this plays a part of evolutionary development. Okay, things develop from the molecule to the advanced society we have now. Well, that was all an interplay of order chaos, order chaos, order chaos. Um, but most of the time when we talk about evolutionary theory, when we talk about the theory of evolution, it's referred to as a non-person, uh, an impersonal and non-purposeful theory. It's about how things um, develop in a non-purposeful way and an impersonal way. Typically, that's how people talk about evolution. Well, J, uh, Jordan Peterson says, I call him JP, sorry. <laughs> Jordan Peterson says, no, evolutionary development develops, but along a purpose. There's a purpose and chaos and order are directing it. Um, and, or they're interplaying one another and the hero is trying to guide it toward a desired end, a purposeful end. So it's not a relativistic or impersonal. Uh, and so which, how do we go? How do we order this way? Well, you don't want to be just the individual will. You're carving out your own values and you're just carving out your own way forward. No, that's chaos. And no, I'm just going to take control of it. And we're going to tell society how we need to be. That's totalitarianism. Mm -hmm. uh, or one person, I think Kessler wrote a book called The Yogi or The Commissar. That's a very interesting book. I'm talking about those two ways but rather the individual must discover what is eternally true and help it move toward its purpose, okay? Somehow we as a society and as individuals need to know how to make life meaningful and purposeful by engaging with order and chaos. Um, so what this means then, if order and chaos can be good and evil, and we need to deliver it to a purposeful end, that means there's something that is deeper than order and chaos. I call it the ethical superstructure. Because <laughs> he talks about virtue as built in, that there are values built in. He says that values are not created, but they're discovered. 
So as we participate in this eternal duality or this eternal dynamism, we go farther up and further in, to quote Lewis in Narnia. Um, it's the development of persons and of societies to make persons and societies more virtuous, to overcome suffering so that we can renew life and make it a more life-giving force. But to Peterson, this fundamental virtue or goodness or love, he uses all three of those at different times, is mysterious. The bedrock is unknown and it simply must be taken by a leap of faith. It can, it can be deduced, but it cannot be proven. It cannot be fully and truly known. One must accept it by faith. <clears throat> well, how can you have a how can you know virtue or meaning if you don't know what is fundamental to reality? It leaves him in a quandary. Well, why don't I just do what I want? Suffering has dealt me a bad card. Why not I just do what I want? Why not take, why not take control of the state? Why not be nihilistic? <clears throat> I mean, JP says <laughs> he doesn't know if virtue or goodness, you have to accept it by a leap of faith, but he's giving rules on how to live kind of iron, uh, ironic. Is it hypocritical? Well, uh, J, uh, Jordan Peterson, sorry. Uh, <laughs> when you write notes all day, you start sounding weird to yourself. <clears throat> uh, when Jordan Peterson <clears throat> talks about it, he's talking about maps and stories are sources to know what is true. We have maps of meaning and we have stories. So first maps. These are the two sources of um, truth. So think of an old map. Uh, you have concentric circles. You have the known order. And then outside of that, around you have kind of like, maybe if you saw Shyamalan and Yin Yang's uh, movie, The Village. Yeah, it's easy for you to say. Uh, <laughs> Um, I got benzodiazepine oh, done and I can't do his name. Um, he did a movie called The Village. And within it is order. But then there's the border. It's kind of relatively unknown. You can go to it. You can kind of see, but you're not allowed to go in there. It's kind of scary. And then outside of it, I won't ruin it, but is chaos. The totally unknown um, until a woman finds out. Uh, but what did she find? I will not say. It's a fantastic movie. Very interesting. Well, this is how we figure out what the land looks like. And I, and I thought of early cartographers, people who made maps. They got on ships. They would travel for years. Maybe they're likely to die. Um, they leave their family to pursue these things all to make a map. It's amazing how life has changed. Um, but you had these rudimentary maps. This is called, this is by Martin Woldesmuller. Woldesmuller. Uh, Carla, you'll have to tell me what, how to say that. But in 1507, some people call this America's birth certificate. Because it's the first time uh, America is referred to by name uh, in reference to Amerigo Vespucci. Okay. And you can see that America looks really wonky. <laughs> looks like Japan or something. Uh, and Africa and Europe and all that doesn't look too normal either. 
but it's a very rudimentary map. But as explorers go out, they start trying to explore and chart unknown land. And they start making the unknown known. Um, but what happened is when the explorers went, they thought they made it to India. We got to India. And look, there's the Indians, right? Now we know what the rest of the world looks like. Let's draw this out. Wait, how does this go with India? Hold on, hold on, wait. There's water over here? Okay, hold on, hold on. No, they're still Indians, but, you know, it's just, but you, you start mapping the unknown and you start trying to name it. You start trying to name the unknown, but you start finding out these people aren't Indians and the maps don't quite work. They're not exactly precise. Um, and so you, you have further exploration. You have further maps. And now we have Google Maps and Siri telling us where to go. We don't even have to think what a map looks like. We just tell, have someone tell us where to go. But what's happened is that as we explored out into the unknown, we have made it more and more known. And we have come to know what we know better. And we realize that we made mistakes in the past um, as referring to uh, uh, First Nations as Indians. Uh, but what we can't do is just go back. We can't go back and say, let's undo what we've learned or what we've discovered. We just have to keep going and refine and renew what is known. So it's not a peaceful process going out into the unknown and trying to come to know it. The ocean, many people died um, in trying to navigate the ocean. Uh, Bilbo lost some friends, uh, but it was still a worthy adventure and things became known. Um, and so we can't just leave the land. We can't just destroy our social institutions, which is kind of one of Peterson's rule is that we can't just destroy what we've learned. It's been a lot of lost lives, a lot of hard work. And yes, we made mistakes. We made bad maps. We misnamed people, but we can't just go back and destroy everything and start over. We can't go back from what we have discovered. So let's try to just renew what is known until we are more refined in what we know, that it is more true to reality. <clears throat> yes. So it, it, in that is he kind of talking about like the deconstruction thing, like just trying to destroy destroy social institutions. Yeah. Yeah. So one of his roles is abandon ideology, which is his shortest rule of all, out of all the books. But he's saying that uh, ideology presents, and I'll say this in a minute, but presents maps that aren't true. They're romanticized or oversimplifications of what reality is, mm -hmm. and we try to guide our lives by oversimplified maps. Mm -hmm and we ruin, uh, and so we can't just destroy, and if, if we try to get chaos to come in and just destroy the institutions that we've created, it will be utter chaos and destruction and death and hell. Um, and so what we need to do is have a little bit of chaos to renew things. So um, I don't know what he thinks about Black Lives Matter and these kind of things, but he probably thinks um, at some point that kind of riot, that kind of protest is something good for society to readdress how it has ordered itself. He may think that it's too far ideologically, but he might think it's still good to have some chaos to renew and revisit our institutions. But let's not just destroy it. It's taken too long to, to come up with the institutions that we have. 
<clears throat> okay. So what has been true culturally and socially is also true personally and psychologically. We must face the unknown in our own lives, in our own hearts, and we need to do so voluntarily um, because we need to figure out the lay of the land. What is the lay of the land of who I am in the world? What my responsibility is in the world? Um, perhaps the socially isolated needs to figure out how to face their fears of society and groups and community and start in small ways to socialize, maybe go out. The, um, I remember seeing a, an article said, I finally overcame my agoraphobia, the fear of going outside and the pandemic done it in, did it in. Uh, well, it's just the agoraphobia, agoraphobian, uh, agoraphobian, the agoraphobian. The person who's afraid of going outside, just go out and buy a coffee and then go back. Okay, go out and say hi to the person, buy a coffee and come back. Small ways of going into the unknown. And you start charting it. You start knowing it. You start naming it. Uh, and it will be rocky. You will have wrecks. But ultimately, you will discover more about life and you'll become more full of a, a more full person, more full, fully alive. However, not all ways are equal. Not all paths and all maps are equal. Um, you could say, I'm going to chart into the unknown. I'm going to have an affair. This is so great. I'm charting in the unknown. I'm becoming fully me. But Peterson says, that's fantasy. That will bring chaos. That's a bad map. Um, it's like navigating through Victoria by looking at the map of Middle Earth. You're going to wreck. And so he's saying that there's some unknowns that are actually fantasies, illusions. And he would say ideologies create maps of illusion, and we're going to wreck our society on false maps. But we need these maps, and we need, to, we need these maps to navigate tr um, through truth as they've been developed um, in ourselves and in society and throughout history. So just as past explorers give us maps today on how to navigate, um, we do not create our own maps entirely from ourselves. We're not self-creating values. We benefit from maps that are already being given to us and advanced upon. What are those maps? Stories. Okay. So two sources. So maps is a way of thinking about maps of meaning of how to like have a meaningful life and charting into the unknown. But how am I to think about that? Well, uh, Peterson says stories. Scientific knowledge is helpful, but it's incomplete. Science of romance, science of happiness. So you get four slides. This is the last one. But it's helped you stay awake for 45 minutes. And I just have 45 minutes more to go. <laughs> I think. I'm just kidding. Um, I hope so. Um, and so, but there's the science of happiness, the science of romance. We look to science to help us understand life. Um, and so you have this magazine from Focus. Uh, it's called Meet the Happiest People on the Planet. Why Meditation Can Rewire Your Brain. Uh, the New Drug to Treat Depression and so on. Um, and so science has tried to help us understand ourselves. But when we speak about ourselves and we speak about lessons... When we speak about lessons, we uh, tell stories. 
someone says, who are you? You don't say, well, I'm five foot seven. I weigh this much. I have this colored hair. You don't do that. You start telling a story where you come from, who, you know, your relationships and how they've been successful or not and so on. Um, so we don't give facts. Scientific facts are helpful, but they're insufficient. We need stories. Paintings and other art are similar. And that's why he often has uh, paintings uh, from a variety of places. And he talks about them to help us understand ourselves. Um, so stories give knowledge and meaning that scientific knowledge cannot give us. So imagine this, a husband might say to a wife, continuing on the affair train, ah, don't worry about her. An affair is simply a biological exchange that you cannot, you just can't accept it because of a survival mechanism in your brain. <laughs> and then that person will be left considering the viscosity of the blood running from their nose um, because the clenched <laughs> knuckles went against their nose. Um, <clears throat> science can't tell the whole story, right? of how we should be, who we are, how should we be, and what should we do. It, so science can only explain the objective nature of reality, but stories explain the subjective nature of reality, and they're just as important. Um, now, stories tell these stories, but, and they tell these eternal truths, but they're not entirely sure why. And so uh, Peterson talks about, well, can't, um, let's see. Uh, I want to read that. So this is a quote from Peterson. Are such questions of existence impossible to answer? Or are there sources available to us from which guidance might be derived? After all, we have been observing ourselves behave in our successes and in our failures for tens, perhaps even hundreds of thousands of years. The stories we can neither ignore nor forget are unforgettable for this reason, among others. They speak to something we know, but we do not know that we know. So stories tell us something that we kind of know, but we don't know. And so stories really um, are emerging from the primordial fog, the primordial evolutionary development, and they help us understand who we are, where we've come from, and where we're going. It's a source of purpose. And then, um, and so from these stories, we learn that, wow, lying and stealing and killing are going to go us into a ditch of total chaos, where bravery, self-sacrifice, and love lead us into a virtuous path and life-giving force. And so we can take these stories, we gather them, we call them, we accumulate, and we start seeing that there's, um, uh, we start wanting to gather these stories. And as we gather them, we start seeing certain consistent patterns. And these patterns Jordan Peterson talks about is the dragon, chaos. Uh, mother is um, nature um, or, uh, well, there's the dragon, there's the, the suffering. But then there's nature, which is maternal. It's feminine. It's chaotic, which is good or bad. Uh, a mother gives birth, but it also can be repressive. Um, the father is culture, which can be order can be domineering or life uh, or a resource um, and the hero. Uh, and so he just develops characters that we have just seen consistent characters throughout all stories. You can look at Egyptian stories, Babylonian stories, Christian stories, or Disney. They're going to help you. He really loves Harry Potter in this new one too. I mean, he really goes. 
for Harry Potter. I've never learned a spiritual lesson from Quidditch until I read Peterson. <laughs> but these are characters that aren't just prototypes or archetypes. They're in movement with one another, and they're telling us how to go. Um, and so that means that stories have to be told of these characters for us to understand ourselves. While there are patterns, there's still this ethical superstructure. Um, or, um, as he says, a story of a story. Flannery O'Connor says it takes a story, capital S, to tell a story. It takes a story to tell a story. You can't just tell stories randomly out of nothing. You need a superstructure, a super story that makes sense of other stories. Now, J uh, Jordan Peterson agrees, uh, but he just doesn't know what that overarching story really is. He just has intimations of what it's telling us and where it might be leading us. The story of stories remains in the shadows. Um, and so that's why he's constantly pushing. We need to tell the truth. We need to be honest about our feelings, which is one of them. We need to abandon ideology because we need to grab a hold of the real story. If someone starts lying and fabricating, you don't know what's real. So how can you navigate the course if someone's lying to you? Um, and so he really, the only time he becomes really moralistic is when someone's not telling the truth. He gets really angry. And I think that's why he's so angry about ideology, because he thinks it's just a big lie. Um, he wants truthfulness. Um, and so, and that's why, you know, he develops this sense of, I want to tell the truth, whether, even if it hurts me, because that's the only way forward. So he feels really important about being truthful in telling our stories in hopes that we might find what the true story is. Um, <clears throat> and uh, let's see. Okay. So, so let me review kind of what JP's, uh, Jordan Peterson's view is. Okay. <clears throat> I'm just going to call him JP. Okay. Yeah. Um, no, I can't. That's just not academic. Okay. <laughs> so Peterson's view of reality is that order and chaos are joined, not in static or dualistic sense, but um, like not a battle of equal forces, but rather order and chaos working together in a dynamic way to bring something better, a renewal, a renewed order um, into a purposeful, meaningful life for the person and for society. It's, that, it's something that we have a moral obligation to participate in, in order um, done in love and in truth. He talks about the importance of others throughout this book a lot, you know, in something in a way that I don't see in the first book, I think, because he really experienced that need and that, and that benefit. But when these actions are done with love and truth, we transform ourselves into responsible, loving people and transform society into something responsible and loving. Um, and I think that's quite beautiful that we're contending against suffering and we're helping others contend against suffering um, as we move forward in our evolution. Um, I appreciate how his writings have helped so many people take on personal responsibility. I've seen people who were jobless, who felt kind of going nowhere, and Peterson gave them the tools and the resources and the, and the um, aspirations to try. So I really appreciate Peterson for that. And, you know, I think it's, he's also written very powerfully because he's really listened to people as a psychologist. 
um, but also as a person out in society and talking with people, I think that he really has his finger on the pulse in a way that the church doesn't, the way that Christians often don't, because we haven't listened and we're trying to answer questions that aren't being asked. And so I think that he's really good at trying to speak well to the questions that are truly being asked. But what is my reflection? What is my Christian response? Um, I have, don't be nervous about this. I have five points. <laughs> don't be frightened by that. Um, <clears throat> because, yeah, I'm not going to make a joke. Okay. <laughs> so the first thing I want to say is, in light of what I just said, I think Jordan Peterson has told the story better than Christians have. He has told our story in some ways better than we have. First, um, oh, as I said, that he's been able to really connect to people. Um, he's been able to do this because he really has a desire for truth. He's a real, really avidly curious about ideas. He's very curious about people. He's always curious. He wants to tell the truth and he wants to hear the truth. So he asks questions after question. Um, uh, Yelka was telling me about how wonderful it was to watch him ask questions. Those were some of the best interviews, not him being asked questions, but him asking questions seemed really. And so it just shows you his, his personableness and his character of really wanting to know what's true, what's real, what's good. Um, and I believe that that's why the church has failed. We haven't listened to people. And it also means that when we go to the Bible as a resource, we have forgotten to look at the scriptures or the Bible as a resource to the people's questions. We teach it as a certain set of dogma or doctrine, which are important and good, but we forgot who we're communicating to. And so it becomes irrelevant. And so <clears throat> he wants to know, and so people are asking, who am I? What does it mean to have a meaningful life? How do I contend with suffering? And he said, well, what resources do we have? He goes to scripture and tries to answer those questions. I think in some ways better than Christians have done. Um, you know, JP is not JC, but I like that he, he seems to ask the question, have you not read? Is it not written? When Jesus talks about the Bible with the Pharisees mm -hmm. and when he's confronting them, Jesus is trying to look at the spirit of the law, not the, the letter of the law, which something Jordan Peterson talks about a lot. Mm -hmm. um, it's, Jesus will ask them, well, have you not read your own scriptures? Have, is it not written? Uh, have you not paid attention to what the Bible says? I feel that Jordan Peterson is in some ways doing that for Christians. Have you not read it in light of what people are truly asking? So I would encourage Christians to pick up Jordan Peterson's books or listen to him just to engage what he says and how he says it, to understand where the cultural discussion is, even if you disagree with him, uh, to help you think more deeply about what the biblical story really is in light of these questions. Okay, second point, the story of stories. So, um, and so I'm going to give three points where I want to, or four points that where I want to confront Jordan Peterson with the biblical story. I think he's done a better job, but now I want to complete what he's looking for. I think the Christian has a way of completing what he started um, or to correct. So Jordan Peterson said that there's a story of stories. 
Um, he often refers to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 3. He loved Genesis 1 through 3. Um, there, God is kind of the orderer. He broods over the primordial chaos and speaks life-giving reality, a hospitable reality. Um, and so he, so God voluntarily faces chaos and brings forth new order. <clears throat> and so you see the importance of what it means to have words and to, uh, and, and, what you see is this primordial chaos as potential, this potential that bursts forth, but it's because God voluntarily engages it, brings it to be a life-giving force, a hospitable force. And so that is something that the Christian needs to hear, that God did not create a static reality. He did not create a garden of Adam for Adam and Eve, and like, like, a, like when a, a man or a woman can get really old and they really hate kids being around because they're going to mess everything up. Uh, don't touch that. Don't touch that. You know, the furniture is all covered in plastic. I grew up around. The, uh, some people think the Garden of Eden was that. Adam and Eve just were like, okay, can I do this? Can I do that? But actually, God created a productive world. Uh, it's teeming with life and potential. The fish are in the water, the birds in the air. There's fruit um, developing from the plants and the trees. Uh, there's livestock and there's animals and and uh, uh, and Adam and Eve. And so God created a, a world that was productive, that humanity needed to know how to tend. He did not create an order that was not to be touched. He created an order that had potential to be reordered and renewed. Uh, and so humanity was to tend toward one another and toward the garden as it developed um, and produce further life. <clears throat> so you see this life force in creation, and we're supposed to tend it toward its development and its maturation. And so Jane, Joni Mitchell famously sang in her song, Woodstock, we got to get back to the garden. Well, that's not the biblical story. We got to get to the new Jerusalem. Uh, the biblical story is that we move from uh, the garden to the garden city. But for Jordan Peterson, the problem is that the Genesis narrative is simply a model or a metaphor. But for the Christian, it's the beginning of the story of stories. It's history. It functions as story. It's our story. It's humans' story. So it's not just primordial mist that emerges, but it's actually our story from where we descend. Um, it is our lineage. And so what it points to is that the beginning of life, um, the story of a good creation and of good humanity is the beginning of a meaningful and purposeful history. Um, you know, Jordan Peterson said, I do not believe, uh, and he's talking about, he's in shock of the goodness of humanity or the goodness of creation, that the Genesis narrative would dare say these two things. And he says, I do not believe there's a more daring argument in all of philosophy or in theology than this. To believe this, to act it out, is the fundamental act of faith. So it's something hard for him to imagine, but he thinks is necessary. To believe that it's good. Yeah, that is good. Uh, my third point, but this uh, is meaningful action in all areas of life. You're being very patient. 
but my last Jordan Peterson talk was an hour and 42 minutes. So just so you know. <laughs> We're ready. But I did show lots of videos. I'm really close to the end. Don't worry. Um, <clears throat> meaningful action in all areas of life. And so this is one thing I really like about Peterson. And I think that where people have been attracted by him is that he creates a simple rule and then ties it to the larger story. May not be the larger story that he fully knows or fully aware of, but he ties it into biology and history and literature. And so a simple rule, clean up your bedroom, is tied to meaning and life and history and social order. It's amazing. Um, and so I think it's too far to call it wisdom. Um, as we understand biblical wisdom of proverbs and parables, but I think there's a kinship because what happens is that he gives a common rule and shows how it's all interrelated into a whole interrelation of life. Um, <clears throat> I don't think I have it written down, but he talks about beauty as everything interrelated. Everything is interrelated. <clears throat> So he says, work as hard as you possibly can on at least one thing and see what happens. Very witty, very memorable. No, um, it's not precise, but he's saying if you focus on one thing, you become morally integrated. If you try to be everything to all people, you're going to be disintegrated. You're going to become chaotic. Mm -hmm. If you focus on one thing in your life, that's the beginning of moral integration. That is the beginning of being a responsible human being and alive. Um, are we in our day-to-day -day actions? Are we bringing renewed order or are we bringing death and disintegration? Now, biblical wisdom is similar. It will have a phrase, a sluggard says, it says in Proverbs, a sluggard says, there's a lion in the road. There's a lion in the streets. Laziness is a moral failure but it also leads to psychological and social disintegration. There's a lion in the streets. I'm afraid I can't move. And so laziness becomes a moral failure. But the reason this proverb can stand is because it stands embedded within the larger story that is known. Uh, it, it's held within the, uh, the, under the lens of Adam and Eve called to be responsible stewards of creation. If they're lazy, that's why there's social disintegration. It's not just you need to whip yourself. I'm being bad. I'm being lazy. But it's integrating, oh, this is why I'm not to be lazy. It's because I'm supposed to be responsible to tend toward um, the world, to tend and fight against suffering, to be the embitterment of others. <clears throat> and so instead of moving toward the land of Nod, as it did for Cain, we're called to move toward the promised city. Um, <clears throat> Okay, I'll keep moving. Uh, the fourth one is the reality of human sinfulness. So this is my third correction of Peterson, but my fourth point in conclusion. <clears throat> so J, um, Jordan Peterson hammers home that uh, humans are sinful. Humans are awful. Humans hurt people. They hurt themselves. They're crazy. They don't understand themselves. It's very unusual for a psychologist to speak so harshly about what it means to be human. Um, he says that we don't understand ourselves. We don't like coping with suffering and we cause suffering to others. Um, but I think it's because he's not idealistic. He's thoroughly realistic about humans truly think, speak, and act because 
He has tended to them over generation or over years and years and years of clinical practice. He knows exactly what people are really like. And so he wants to take sin and suffering honestly. He wants to tell the truth. Um, the problem with Jordan Peterson is that he believes sin is just to become self-aware rather than a moral failure to a God that has called to know us. Um, and so self-knowledge becomes very difficult for Peterson. He can't delve into the depths of the human psyche because he doesn't have a place for God to know us. Um, and then the last one is hope in the midst of suffering, loss, and death. Uh, so because Peterson is so emphatic about the failures and the suffering and the sinfulness of humanity, it's hard for him to hope. He just finds that needs to be a leap of faith. And so he says the right attitude to the horror of existence, <laughs> the right attitude to the horror of existence, the alternative to resentment, deceit, and arrogance is the assumption that there is enough of you, society in the world, to justify existence. That is faith in yourself, your fellow man, and the structure of existence itself. The belief that there is enough of you to contend with existence and transform your life into the best it could be. Perhaps you could live in a manner whose nobility, grandeur, and intrinsic meaning would be of sufficient import that you could tolerate the negative elements of existence without becoming so bitter as to transform everything around you into something, something resembling hell. What he's saying there, if you follow, is that, you know, the noble path is possible. It is evolutionarily bubbling in you and it's directing you into the higher path. If you fall off that path, if you give up, you're just going to fall into further hell. So there's enough. I believe it. Have faith in yourself. Have faith in the structure of existence and push forward. There's no other way. <clears throat> that will give you meaning. It's something that he wants to believe so deeply that he just can't prove. What's preeminent for him is the model of Christ, the death and resurrection of Christ. But the problem for him is that it's merely symbolic and not historic. But if the resurrection is merely symbolic, what we, are, we are really without an assured hope that our actions really do have meaning. The Apostle Paul says that if the resurrection didn't happen, we are without hope and to be pitied. Why pitied? Because Paul contended against suffering for the sake of Christ so that he could bring renewed order. It wasn't hopeless because Christ truly did die and truly did raise again in the flesh. But um, so in the same way, I'm amazed that Jordan Peterson wants to contend against suffering without meaning. But I pity him because he cannot hold on to the very thing that would give him the courage and the, and the value and, um, and the purpose that he so longs for. I don't, I'm not going to speculate why he doesn't believe. I just don't know. But to have a biblical hope, one must recognize that Jesus in his full humanity fully died, lived, died, and rose again. And it's for this that the Christian may hope in the face of unbearable suffering. So in conclusion, <clears throat> so like many others, I've been fascinated by the life and work of Peterson. I found a lot of his thoughts helpful. 
a lot of his work helpful. Um, I have found his courage to speak truthfully inspiring. Um, but like I said, I'm not an acolyte. I find his description and explanation fall short of satisfying. Um, and I've seen so many people want to copy him. But what I've seen them want to copy, they want to copy his ideas, but not copy him. But I actually admire him more than what he thinks. Because he's had so much courage and the desire to contend against suffering, the desire to tell truth in spite of not knowing how to think about it. <clears throat> uh, his ability to be vulnerable in the midst of enemies, the midst of pursuing truth, wanting to turn over every rock <clears throat> and turn every page to every story to try to know what's true um, and that he continues to persevere and be vulnerable. So I think that his bravery is, should be imitated. His pursuit should be imitated. Um, what I also find remarkable is his attempt to show that life and history are meaningful and purposeful. Um, that's where the new atheists and atheism 2.0 failed. They failed to give a complete coherent worldview, but he is able to create a coherent worldview. I think that's tremendous. Um, but he's only been able to do that because he borrows from the biblical story. Even if he borrowed from every other myth, but not the biblical story, it would fall far short, far short of being convincing for anyone, I think. His whole persuasion falls on the power of the biblical story. Um, but in doing it, it shows you that people really want to believe the story, but there's something in them that just refuses to believe in the story. They want what the they want the obligate they want the uh, mercies, but not the obligation. They want the easy path, but not the short um, the the narrow path as well. Um, God is gracious, but through Christ alone. <clears throat> um, so. <clears throat> Uh, when he looks at the story, he subsumes the biblical story under reason, under what's reasonable, what can be discovered, without receiving it as revelation from a personal God. And if you cannot receive the biblical story as revealed from God, a personal God who's communicating himself, then we will be without ultimate hope. Um, so I think that we Christians need to take the mantle and learn from Peterson as he engages people and culture and ideas, how to reflect on the Bible more deeply. But we need to pray as Christians that we can present the gospel as well as he has, but to tell the rest of the story. Okay. <clears throat> okay. Um, thanks for surviving. <laughs> Uh, you know, everyone was with me until I ran out of slides. So, <laughs> um, but, okay, let's open it for a time of uh, questions and discussion. Okay. That was very helpful. I really enjoyed that. Appreciated. Now I don't have to read the books. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, now you can understand what the fuss is about. Well, I've, uh, I've read a lot of his stuff and seen quite a few of his videos that he's mm -hmm. done. And uh, I'm still trying to figure out what his worldview is. I'm guessing he's a naturalist materialist. Uh, 
Uh, well, he's a, he's a few things. There's actually, I can send out a link. Um, there's a guy named Alistair Roberts, I think his name, Alistair Roberts. And he talks, and if you type in understanding Jordan Peterson, he gives a very long philosophical description of what he believes, but he really falls into existentialism. He really falls into existentialism where the individual must make meaningful action by their choices. That's ultimately, that's kind of existentialism. Uh, and, but he's a secular existentialist that borrows from the Bible as a resource for knowing what meaning is. I think yes. that maybe Sartre would say that's mauvais foi, um, you know, bad faith, that you're living by someone else's story. If I, if I understand that correctly, but uh, Peterson uses the biblical story or the resources of the past, the stories of the past, in order to know how the individual might make a choice in the midst of suffering and absurdity. So he's really a secular existentialist and existentialism does, you know, uh, is probably a branch off a naturalistic view of the world, but it's not strict materialism because he believes that there's a subjective reality. Strict materialism wouldn't believe that there's a reality to subjective, to, um, to the subjective. I mean, you have, um, uh, who was that? Thomas Nagel, who wrote Mind and Cosmos. Yes. Who, who was trying to have a, a, a theory that tried to explain matter and consciousness. Well, um, and he were, I think he becomes like a platonic mystic of some sort. I can't remember. But uh, Peterson is somewhere <clears throat> in the vein of trying to describe those two realities, matter and consciousness, as two fundamental realities. Yeah, I think that Nagel, I got a copy of it. Nagel's book, I think, is titled Mind and uh, Cosmos. Mind and Cosmos, why the uh, Darwinian theory of evolution is almost certainly false. Something like that. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> yes. Uh, Liz has a question. Uh, yeah, I feel like it, it may be related. Um, I just wanted to ask a bit more about what you were saying about his thought that we need to, that of the importance of us telling stories. Is he talking about like our personal stories or is he talking about like cultural story, like mythology and things like that? No. And how can we know, I'm, this is sort of something you're pointing to, but because a lot of people today say like, oh, that's my story. So you can't judge my story because it's my experience. So how could we tell our stories in a way that holds any authority? Like he's, he's wanting to tell stories in a way that will bring us closer to knowing what the true story is, but does he propose any method of sort of sorting through stories to like, how, how will we find what is closer to that true story? Uh, which story is closer than another? That's great. Okay. So let me see if I can articulate it. Liz is asking about, well, when he says people should tell stories um, or look to stories, are they really, is he telling them to tell their own story or to look to myths? And uh, within that, if, you know, often people will tell their story and say, you can't judge my story. Does, does Peterson have some kind of word um, or um, to say or response to that to say, well, no, this story needs to be, uh, does he give any indication that their story needs to be tied to this larger story? Um, and I would say, yeah, uh, so first, 
he's saying that we need to look to the oldest stories, the stories that have remained. That's, those are the ones with more veracity or more likelihood to be true because um, they've stuck around because there's something in our DNA and our social DNA as well that, that tells us that, yes, this is really true. But when a story is newly told or an individual tells their own story, it doesn't bear the same gravitas, the same weight, or even the same truthfulness as, um, as, an, as an older story. So I think that he would just say, you know, the stories that we tell us may be false, they may be true, but that's, he's not saying that you can tell your own stories and look to your own stories as telling your truth because he doesn't believe in self-created values. And so he does say explicitly, we cannot create values, we discover them. And we discover them through ancient stories. So, uh, so Alejandro, oh, do you want to follow up? Well, just, well, uh, it's still, that still leaves me unclear on how, even those ancient stories, how can we sort through to know which ones are closer to the truth than the other? Well, how can we tell which ancient stories are more true than the other? Well, I don't, um, yeah, I mean, it's a good question. It's like, how, why should we believe the, the story of Horus? Um, you know, this Egyptian hero rather than Jesus Christ. He doesn't have one that says one is more true than the other, that they're both valuable because they both have remained. Um, and I think that's one of the problematic things because he gives equal weight to Jesus as to Horus, as to Osiris, as to Marduk. Um, and so um, I think he refers to the biblical story more often because there's just simply more stories mm -hmm. and that all those stories are held within an overarching story, overarching story. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's why he just refers to it more often than these other stories, but he really tries to tie into those. Mm -hmm. Now he'll refer to movies as recent as Disney, like Sleeping Beauty or, or even Harry Potter, but he only sees their having validity because they reflect certain tropes or certain motifs that he has found in older stories. Um, yeah, usually these Jungian archetypes. If they follow these Jungian archetypes, then they must be true or more true than a story that doesn't have these archetypes. So if a story like, like Horace is not typically widely believed yes. and now it's told, told that much anymore, so does that, does it lose validity if it's not still being told? Like this story of Jesus is still being told. Yes. Yeah, so does the story of Horus seem to hold less weight than the story about Jesus because it's not told as often or not as well known? Yes, but he would say, yeah, I mean, he might say something like that. Uh, maybe Christians are just better preserving that story, not necessarily society. Um possibly be a possible answer i'm guessing that he would say another one is well it's an old story but it's still and it's not well known but it's still around it still exists like you can tell a story about how funny it was when you went to the grocery store but no one's going to remember you know the stories my father told me i remember a scant amount of the stories that he told me and i think i don't even know if i remember any of the stories my grandfather told me and i know that i know none that my grand great-grandfather had because they were never told to me. Uh, I know very few facts about my great-grandfather, but they're lost. 
So if you have a story about an Egyptian hero, Horus, that still exists, mm -hmm. well, it was preserved by many people for a long time. So we have to give it some credence, even if it's not widely believed. So. You had, had a phrase at the start that included the uh, word ethical. Remember what that was, ethical something. Ethical superstructure. Ethical superstructure. Thank you. Yes. Uh, so he wouldn't have been a utilitarian. No, I don't think he would be a utilitarian, no. What's that? Pragmatist. Yeah, more of a pragmatist. Uh, Alejandro? You, made a, you said that he made a distinction, a distinction between two postures towards the unknown. In one, it is wise to pursue the unknown and admit to grow. And in the other one, it is foolish. Yes. And your example was someone facing their fear to uh, social interaction, pulling themselves towards social interaction. And in the other one, the example of the offer. Yes. And I saw the distinction very clearly, but, but what would be the principle? What, how can you hmm. distinguish between, between when it is helpful and when it is not? It seems to me like sort of a moral hmm. principle, isn't it? Hmm. Is, is that what he is getting at? So Alejandro wants to know about, uh, I, I spoke about a posture of going into the unknown. There was a positive way of going and a negative way of going. Uh, you know, facing your fears as a social, socially ostracized person or a socially isolated person. Um, and then the person having an affair. Uh, the first one was a positive, the second one was a negative. Is there, is there an ethical principle behind which which unknown we should pursue or how we should pursue the unknown? That's an excellent question. I'm not sure I could tell you what Peterson would say exactly. Um, I do, I would say that where he talks about um, uh, hmm. He talks about suffering and he said also by serving society. So both the, the good there would be that's, that's really good. So Julia's like, um, what about the suffering? Yeah, he, he would say that suffering is necessary. He thinks if there is something absolute about being is that suffering is necessary. And that suffering is, suffer suffering is necessary for renewed order. So if you're not contending against suffering, but you're causing suffering, then that is a false posture into the unknown. So the affair is causing more suffering than helping it. And so he would say there is a time to divorce, but, um, but most of the time you need to contend against the suffering. There needs to be many other paths before than, than having an affair. Uh, and he also talks about the affair as something very self-serving. He's very much against self-serving. So if it's a principle of trying to engage the world more fully, uh, where you're contending against suffering for the betterment, for the betterment of society, then that would be the way of facing the unknown. Um, do you want to follow up with that? So if you wanted to, to uh, use his thoughts to, uh, for, for the, to, as a guidance for moral behavior, what he will give you will, will be like principles and then you will need to calculate the best action in the heat of the moment, like if somebody was looking for guidance in behavior, that's, that's what he has to offer. So yeah, uh, what does he have to offer in terms of guidance, in terms of ethical I, behavior? I want to distinguish when it is healthy to pursue the unknown or not. And 
and I am a follower of, of this as well. What you will offer me will be this principle, and then what I will get is the principle, and then I will need in the, in the need of the moment to calculate the best action. Yeah, so how to calculate the best action. Um, so he's not utilitarian because he's not thinking what is the, uh, what makes the, what's, uh, what do the most people agree on or what can help the most people in an action. And so you might sacrifice one person to help the rest. He doesn't fall into that kind of camp. Uh, so, so what he does, you know, in abandoned theology, uh, ideology, he would say, you need to follow your conscience. Sometimes, uh, if it's, it's either in that rule or the rule before, but he's basically saying, sometimes you need to be like a prophet. You need to follow your conscience when everyone else is disagreeing with you. Uh, and, and, and can come at great cost, but you need to take that path, even though people will disagree with it and it costs you a lot. Uh, I think that the ethical principle he would say with what we were just talking about, because he doesn't really know what to say the good is, but he knows what the bad is. He knows what suffering is. And so what is good is contending against what is bad, contending what is uh, trying to, uh, he would say, ameliorate the suffering, try to improve the conditions of suffering. So how might we do that? Uh, I think that that would be his basic ethical principle. But, but reality is complex. So we need to look to stories about how different, different people have navigated that and to see where there were failures and where there were successes. And that will also broaden out our ethical understanding. Uh, Abigail? Okay, so yeah, to attend or to combat suffering, is that a part of facing the unknown or facing chaos? What does it mean to confront chaos or engage chaos? Well, it, it can be suffering. It's not necessarily suffering, but it will, it will, um, like a road adventure. You're going on the road, you're not sure what you're going to face, and it's just exciting. You're 20 years old, your whole life is before you, and just going out, and you just want to figure out what's going to happen. I'm not going to take much money. Well, that wouldn't be really, that's confronting or engaging chaos, but it's not contending with suffering per se. But it is readying yourself for the unknown. Because sometimes the unknown will emerge without, uh, without your wanting to. Uh, I wonder if I can. I have the quote here. I was also thinking of wanting comfort or ease at all costs. Like, yeah, yeah, it is risk taking. It's not just yeah. Um, but not just like yeah. It's a part of faith too. Then it is a part of faith. Yeah, like Abraham in Hebrews eleven. Is that he went toward a city that um, that he saw but never reached? Um, it was a heavenly city. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, I mean, it's very Christian in that sense that we're going out in and risking ourselves for what is unseen, mm -hmm. and what is. Um, however, we have the Word become flesh. We have. Uh, we have seen. You know, we have seen Him with our with our eyes and touched Him with our hands, and we witnessed to the truth. So there is a sense that, you know, yeah, Jesus is, even though he took on flesh, he walked among us, he taught us, yet they're like, 
he's still a mystery to us. They constantly didn't understand. And so they were following the rabbi wherever he went. And we continue to follow the leading of the spirit, the spirit of Christ. And so we're being led into the unknown, but we're not being led by our own candles. You know, uh, that's a very, you know, I, it just made me think of that Isaiah passage in Isaiah 50, where it says, those who walk in darkness walk with the Lord, um, but those who light, um, live by their own lights will sit down in torment. Uh, because, you know, we're trying to live by our own light, our inner light, or, or our own techniques, or our own success, rather than just trusting the Lord into the unknown, because even darkness is not dark to him. So we are taking a risk in a sense, but he's already gone through with the risk. He's already faced it and overcome it. Um, so yeah, we are risking, we are following, but, uh, and for the, you know, the, the heroes of faith in Hebrews 11, there is a sense that some are torn apart and suffer, but some aren't. Some suffered, some didn't. And so, uh, so the journey of faith is not the same for everyone. Uh, but it is always pursuing the unseen uh, that uh, of, a, of a deeper reality, but one that we see in part. Yeah. Uh, do you want to follow up or do you want to follow up on that? I want to, I want to plug into that yeah, great. With, with two comments. Suffering and chaos. So Jordan Peterson believes that we each have a map of our sense of what reality is, but because reality is extremely complex and our map is simple, we're going to crash into reality at some point. Yes. That will cause suffering. We then have to reconstitute our map in order to, and it's not always possible. Some people can never get to that point, but the idea is you got to reconstitute your map in order to continue to exist. So in some sense, it's somewhat pragmatistic. He's not purely he's not purely materialist. He has a phenomenological point of view, where he believes reality has things that shine forth. Mm. That uh, you don't look at a room when you look at a room. You look at things that um, draw your attention to it. And so right. he he your life is directed by your attention by the things that shine forth from reality. So there's a phenomenological sense to mm. Jordan Peterson. So I would say he's a pragmatist and a phenomenologicalist. And that's why he kind of can plug into the Christian worldview. Mm. I don't think he can be a Christian presently because I think there's something about his whole, his whole structure of philosophy that can't accept the reality of Jesus Christ and, and you Clark you you talked about that mm -hmm. you, you said he he can't believe there's a historical Jesus he he can't accept that that's the only way and so I would say fundamentally he's rebellious mm -hmm. thanks those are my comments yeah that's really really helpful I hope you heard all those yeah that was very interesting uh you know um you said um, you made two your your one comment and the the first comment and then the comment you made uh, about uh, him having wisdom but not enough and I was thinking actually you know uh, 
you know, of Tolstoy just now. Uh, you see his rules, his rules are a real practical help. Uh, and I like them. Yes. But you see, so long as there are rules, you're in a box. It's not a Tolstoy. It, Tolstoy does not even exclude certain sins and say this sin or whatever. You know, it just, he just leaves it all there. Mm-hmm. And uh, that is I, I uh, that is the one interesting thing about him. His his stuff is very bi- autobiographical, either both yes. books. And and uh, the other remark that you made that I think is just wonderful when you said uh, that he told uh, that um, 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 that um, the, the Christian response. What did you say? He told a story better than Christians have. Yeah, yeah, that's what you said. He told a story better than Christians have. And, you know, I think that is a very important remark. There one, one could examine that for a very long time. But I, I just puzzle about that myself all the time because I'm having to look at missionaries and they are so criticized mm-hmm. at present. And they're actually ex- criticized, especially from a Marxist-Leninist um, group um, that now have shed that, but way back when started, and, and they turned their Marxist-Leninism into a story. And with that, they criticized the missionaries like nobody's business. But I am wondering why that is, this, the he told the story better than Christensen, because somehow we are, there is, is it, Part of it must be language because there is a sub language that goes with being Christian. You hear it in the church all the time and and the greetings uh, even from my friends and and all of these kinds of things. It's, it, it, it's a language. Uh, um, I, I don't know what to do about it. I don't know what to say about it. And uh, well, there are other things, but what do you think further? Yeah, thank you so much. I do think that... <clears throat> I did wonder for a long time if it, and I spoke about this a bit in my second talk, just is it because he was a, is a secular person talking about the Christian story that people are going to listen more quickly than if a Christian tells the same story. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I don't think that's entirely true. That might be a little bit of it. Um, I think, I do think that uh, the language, like you said, that he uses a different language. Yeah. Um, yeah, I know people who grew up in the church who just cannot swallow the Christian story and they can't go to church, but now they're wanting to come to Labrie and talk about the Bible because they heard Jordan Peterson. Uh, that's remarkable that they want to talk about life and meaning and the overarching story, and they don't want to go to church because Peterson has tapped into something, has articulated something um, that the church hasn't done for people. Yeah. I think that's what it is, is that he, and that's why I mentioned that is because through his psychological uh, awareness of people, where people really are in their heart of hearts and not just how they present themselves. I mean, uh, at church, I go to Bible studies and sometimes people are bored to tears and they're all Christians. <laughs> We're boring each other to tears with the, with the gospel. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's terrible. 
uh, mm -hmm. that, that we bore each other and don't excite the imagination and don't exert energy in our bodies to follow, uh, to be convinced and to share the message. There's something that we're not even telling, we're, we have misunderstood the story within ourselves. Uh, I think Jordan Peterson, as a person who is desperate for truth, desperate to contend with suffering, um, is, is able to articulate the importance of the story. Uh, yeah, you know, you know, yeah. you know what I was just going to say, is it in part that Christians, even in groups, cannot quite tell the story in this sort of secular, the Christian story in a secular manner somehow, however, I mean, C.S. Lewis does that a lot. Uh, is it, is it because there is this moral hold on us? Uh, I mean, he talks about ethics slightly bit different from moral. I mean, is it that uh, there is this fright that, um, that Christianity makes moral judgments of other peoples that can be hard? It's often common, it's one of the first points I notice that people, that make people angry about missionaries mm -hmm. is that they would make a moral judgment, a negative moral judgment about the behavior of those people out there in that different world that they, that they study. Yeah, I think I about, the, I don't know if you've that. read the Poisonwood Bible. The what? The Poisonwood Bible. Um, oh, I haven't. <laughs> is it King's Lover? Yeah, Barbara King's Lover. King Solver. King Solver. King Solver. I like Lover better. Come on. Okay. King Solver. Well, in that book, uh, I've only read some of it, but in that book, she talks about going as a, her father's a missionary. It's a novel. It's not. It's not. Docu it's not autobiographical. Maybe I don't know if that's her part of her story or not. But it's about the daughter who. Um, speaks about her father going to this African tribe and there's all these African women who are bare-breasted and they come in and they're all interested in the, the story of this new news, this good news. And before the uh, pastor can get into the story of Christ, he basically um, lashes them for their lust uh, in, in the society because all the women are bare-breasted. And of course they didn't even have a sense of shame according to the novel. They didn't have a sense of shame. It wasn't a part of their framework until the pastor came and made everyone ashamed. Um, and so what, what I mean by this is, or I, the reason I tell it is that sometimes we come into a culture and we want to spotlight all the things that we think are wrong and forgetting where people are at. You know, Paul, in, when he went into Athens, he wanted to engage them where they were at. Where were, their, where were they thinking? How were they feeling? How were they expressing themselves? He was where the people really were. He, uh, mm -hmm. Jesus, I think, was very successful. And I, I talk about this as uh, one of the, the gifts of the Spirit is the ability to read the human heart. I think the Christian should learn how to read the other person's heart. Mm. And I think that the Spirit gives us that gift as we listen to them. Because we have learned to listen to the Father through the, um, uh, by the work of the Spirit into our own hearts to understand ourselves, to understand our own vulnerabilities, to understand our own sinfulness, 
and to understand our own glory. Um, and these are things that we are equipped with as we engage others. Uh, so I, I think that we, within our own church groups or maybe missionaries, um, we forget to know what it means to be vulnerable. We think that we're trying to carry God to others rather than meeting where God is at work um, in people's hearts. And I think Peterson is trying to engage the person at that deep heart level. Yeah. And I think that's and why I, he's more successful. Be, I, be, I don't want to, what was the title of that book again? The Poison Wood Bible. The Poison Wood? Yes. <laughs> the Poison Wood, wood. Bible. Yeah. The Poison Wood Bible. It's one word, Poison Wood. Oh, it's one word. Yes. And and the author's name again? King Solver. King Solver. King? King Solver. One word. Okay. Barbara King Solver. Okay. Yeah, with your emphasis on cultural anthropology and looking at missions, I think that you would find it a fascinating read. It was a really, yeah. big, it was a really important book in the 90s. Yeah. Okay. No, that's great. Thank you. Okay, Greg. Yeah, I was gonna say. I think that when all, all through your talk, I kept hearing C.S. Lewis, and Carla mentioned C.S. Lewis there. Hmm. He did one thing to talk to, but I, I just, you know, it's like uh, he has he's got a, a way through secularism, you know, through his agnosticism. Is really, I think, you know, where he's he's at. Hmm. Uh, it, through his agnosticism, come up. You know, obviously as a Christian, I think, you know, the spirit speaking uh, through him, they come up with the, the same sort of thing that Lewis did, because I see particularly in the great divorce, and you got nihilism and chaos, and basically that that's Lewis's hell mm. in the great divorce. Mm. Yes. You know? And and then and then you've got on the other side, you've got order, but it's 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 chosen order. Mm. You know, it's an order that's chosen. It's not. It's not an imposed order, but yes. a chosen order. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, I saw so many parallels between what he is getting at, you know, through his agnosticism that Lewis got, you know, through his Christianity. I think that's wonderful. Did y'all hear all that? Yeah. Okay. So yeah, I, you know, I forgot when I was thinking about this talk, I, I was thinking about maybe bringing up Lewis, but of course it's already long, too long. Uh, given more time, so it'll be more succinct. But uh, C.S. Lewis became a Christian through being convinced of true myth, you know, because he, he looked at, um, at wonder, at uh, um, what's that... Uh, What's that German word about? Sinsucht. Sinsucht, uh, longing. Yeah, that longing. That, uh, oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, he called it, it joy. Than... <laughs> yes, that's a very special word, I tell you, in the German. Yes. Okay. Um, the only word I know is short. C.S. Lewis does it. Yes. Yeah, so C.S. Lewis looks at this. And he, he sees that stories point to fundamental realities, to the story of meaning, much like Peterson. But uh, that path led him to see Jesus, and Tolkien helped him 
to lead uh, to lead him to see that Jesus is not just myth, but true myth. Mm-hmm. That he's the completion of all the stories. Mm-hmm. And so Jesus, uh, if I can remember how to articulate this, but that Lewis had this sense that all stories could be comparable and are intimations and expressions of what it means to be human. But it is, and he thought Jesus fell into the same camp, but Tolkien, Tolkien helped him or led him to understand that all those stories pointed to the realization of Christ, that he was the fulfillment of what all these stories pointed to. Um, and so he saw that there was the biblical story fulfilled in Christ, but outside of the biblical story, there were all these fairy tales and myths that also looked to the realization and fulfillment of Christ, but from outside revelation, but through Zinzucht or, you know, the <laughs> sense of, of, of pointing to the beyond. Uh, oh, so there's just timelessness about things. So you can say the same thing. Like, or you yeah. could go back the other way and you can say the same thing about Buddha. Yeah. Yeah. And Lewis thought he, Lewis said at one point that oh, the yeah, uh, Jesus narrative, yeah, Lewis said at one point that the Jesus narrative is really a myth that actually happened, that actually did occur. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you would know actually, Eli, how to express that better. Can you explain how, um, uh, if you're okay with that, of, of how Lewis came to understand how Jesus was not just one of the myths? Uh, he, um, I don't know, I, I tried my best to, uh, to describe it, but uh, part of it is, part of it is still a bit mysterious to me. As a matter of fact, somebody called, one of his friends called his book, uh, Surprised by Joy, which is his autobiography. Uh, some of his friends called it Suppressed by Jack. There's a lot of stuff that he left out. <laughs> it's surprised by joy. It's suppressed by Jack. He made jokes about it, but he—it's uh, a, it's a long story. Uh, much can be said about it. Uh, I'll just say this much, and that is that uh, when he first became a theist, he said something like this: "I was perhaps the most forlorn uh, convert in all of England." Because I worship God for what he was, not because of what he could do for me, but for what he was. Mm -hmm. In another place, he said, I think it's by God's mercies that for the longest time I believed in him without thinking about there being a reward just because of who he was. I worshiped him as God and only later thought about it, about the reward in in the the next life. But he wrestled with uh, becoming a Christian probably for a year to a year and a half. It's Nobody's quite sure how long it took because there's some debate about when he became a theist. But he says at one point in his uh, autobiography that uh, for the longest time he was a theist, but he couldn't really believe the Jesus narrative as true and uh, in a supernatural. And without the supernatural, there is no Christian faith. We can see that his uh, that his, uh, uh, his sacrifice is a model for us, but Christianity is much more than an example. And then at one point he says, I don't, I'm not quite sure how it happened, but I got in my brother's uh, sidecar to go to the zoo 
and it's about a 40 mile trip apparently. When I got into the sidecar, I did not believe that Jesus was the son of God. When I got out of the sidecar about 40 miles later at the zoo, I believed that Jesus was the son of God. Mm-hmm. He says, it's kind of like you go to bed at night and in the morning you kind of gradually wake up and you realize that you're awake. That's kind of the way he put it. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I'm, you know, he's, he's he, uh, at, at several points he said to uh, people later on, I believe that the hound is the hound of heaven is after you. I do not believe that you're going to escape him. Mm-hmm. So he very very much believed in the activity of the Holy Spirit, and obviously, uh, the joy, the saint soup he thought was a part of that. Mm-hmm. Well, hopefully, uh, thank you so much. That's really helpful. I really um, hope that the hound of heaven is after Jordan Peterson. Yes. Must have been a very scary motorcycle rider. <laughs> yeah. I often joke that there's a lot of Christians in the South because we have lots of th- lightning storms and tornadoes. Well, the two have something in common that is they both come from the secular to the yeah. Christian. Mm-hmm. G.S. Lewis, that is what makes him so fascinating to me. Yes. I... I'm glad you bring folk like this to our attention. Uh, I think very often God's prophets come from unexpected places. Mm. And uh, this gentleman, Mr. Peterson, sounds to me like a prophet God has sent along to us and he will deal with him. We don't have to deal with him, but he, we can certainly learn from him. Mm. Yes. Yeah. yeah, thank you. That was wonderful talk, and and so was your uh, second one too. Uh. Oh, thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, yeah it was great. Part.